Hi, I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding the Bible in its original context and its wisdom for today. Let's get started. Here we are again, uh, ready to discuss some more poetry. Last time we talked about why poetry is such an important literary form in the Bible because it really addresses the the big issues, the big topics that um, that are the most important and that helps us kind of point to what the biblical authors are, are trying to say and advocate for. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. And I think you, you said it last time that it, it actually does the work quite directly mm. when we typically think that it's all very indirect. Um, I think also I, I, just in the time between recording these two episodes, I've had the thought um, that one of the reasons I think people think that poetry is not direct is because it's full of uh, metaphors and illusions. And, uh, but I, th- I think that when we think of poetry as full of metaphor, we forget that all of life is full of metaphor. Mm. So even saying the law or that God is a king is a metaphor um, hmm. or um, the law of gravity is the law is a metaphor there. There is no law. I mean, law entails a law keeper, a law giver, all of those things. So um, we're constantly in both scientific and normal and legal and common life. We're using metaphorically rich language. And so poetry is not different on that front, even though I think we often think of like, oh, metaphors are cute and illustrative over there. Mm. I think because poetry plays with language and submits to certain formats and structures, we tend to take it less seriously, Um, Mm. at least in our culture. That may not be a a truism, but it seems to be how people think about poetry. Yeah, that makes sense. So kind of thinking about structure and form, what are some different, I know you talked about acrostics last episode. Um, What are some different forms that poetry takes in the Bible? Um, so there's not a whole, I mean, there, there's a lot if you subdivide them, but acrostics is one where you just, uh, where the first letter of each line, uh, is pulled from some structure. So in junior high or middle school, whatever they call it these days, people used to, I remember girls used to do this. I don't know if guys did too, but, um, they take somebody's name like Stephanie, Mm -hmm. um, or Matana, and then they put one word for each letter of your name, uh, what that describes you, uh, and that's a form of acrostic. Um, so acrostic is just a way to organize the content. The longest chapter in the Psalms, or actually the longest chapter unit of literature anywhere in the Bible, is uh, Psalm 119. It's a long acrostic poem where every eight lines is uh, – each of the eight lines of each stanza begins with uh, the same letter of the alphabet and works its way from A to Z in the Hebrew version. Um so acrostics uh, are an organizing feature, again, that you have to think about why they organize that way. Matana being an acrostic is, is different from using the alphabet as your uh, organizing feature. The um, – oh, there's a great example of this. I wish we could show it to everybody. I show it in class, but it's a long essay on Niels Bohr, the physicist who discovered uh, quantum mechanics or worked on quantum mechanics. I have my students read it. And then uh, as they're reading it through, I'm like, what is this about? And they, and they tell me, oh, it's about Niels Bohr, this Danish uh, physicist. And, and then I flip to the next slide where I just took the same thing and highlighted every word on the left-hand column. And it's 
I am never going to give you up. I'm never going to let you down. I'm never <laughs> going to run around and hurt. And now I say, now what is this about, right? And so I think that's huh. a good lesson with acrostics is that when you see the form, you have to kind of alter your relationship to the content and say like, okay, this is put into the structural form. Why this form? Mm. What kind of structure is going on here? In this case, it's alphabetic. Hmm. Uh, so that's acrostic, which I already talked about and just mm -hmm. talked about a whole lot more. Um, <laughs> and then uh, lyrical poetry, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. That's what I read at the beginning. Um, and lyrical poetry or climactic poetry, it's also called, um, where it's kind of creating a sense of movement. Um, Song of Songs is probably the most famous in the Bible of being lyrical poetry. And by lyrical, we just mean it's almost like an impressionist painting. It's not trying to argue, you know, this, then that, this is this, this isn't that. It's really trying to create an image um, mm. by giving you lots of little images. Um, so... That one, I think, is more along the lines of the way we think of artistic expression. But even there, it's creating an image to constrain what belongs to the image and what doesn't belong to the image. Mm -hmm. So Nahum or Nahum uh, is another example of lyrical poetry where he creates these very, very vivid images of the destruction of Nineveh. Um, but it's actually to make a deep theological point about God's reign and um, and what he will do to Israel as well if, if uh, she keeps oppressing the poor and the foreigner. Um, so it's not just merely a, a decorative picture to look at. It's actually doing that kind of philosophical work as well. Mm. And then uh, the one that I think if you've ever taken a Bible class, you've probably heard of chiasms. Uh, chiasm is it's uh, like the letter X, but take off half of the X and you have an arrow. And the idea, it's called a chiasm because there's an inward movement and then an outward movement again. And um, the best example of this is, I think, uh, in well, if you want a common one, hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock, the clock struck one, the mouse ran down, hickory dickory dock. So hickory dickory dock is at the beginning and end, and they're, they're parallel elements. The mouse ran up, the mouse ran down, and they focus your attention on what happened at the center, the clock struck one. Okay, so that's a really silly one. <laughs> But it is chiastic. Um, so chiasms are trickier because sometimes they're natural, like they happen without us thinking. Uh, I think I gave you the example of a drunken wedding toast <laughs> or just any wedding toast. It doesn't yeah. have to be drunken where, uh, <laughs> where people came into the toast not quite sure of what they were going to say. And they just begin saying something and they get kind of into it a little bit. They realize they don't know what they're into and they don't know how to get out of it. And so they kind of reverse steps and they try to land it back on that first thing that they talked about. So it has this, so it has a sense of inward outward movement, which would give the sense that you meant to do it, right? Mm. Um, that it was intentional. But even that, trying to give the sense that it was an intentional speech, even though it wasn't and you were just stumbling around trying to find your way back to what you started with. Um, that shows you that we're using the, the poetic structure. Uh, in order to like say something more meaningful than if we just gave a list of things mm. that were interesting about the bride and groom, for instance. Um, so that's a chiasm. Uh, we can also, I can give you a great example of a chiasm in um, modern poetry. Macklemore, who's a hip hop artist, he has a song called Wings, and he ends the song Wings um, with this chiasm. And again, I'm not sure if he intended it to be a chiasm. Um, but you can feel very clearly what happens in the middle that changes the relationship from the beginning to the end. 
So I'll just read it directly. It started out with what I wore to school that first day. These are what make you cool. This And this pair, this would be my pair of shoes. So much more than just a pair of shoes. Nah. Okay, that's a, that's a big one when he says nah. This is what I am, what I wore, the source of my youth. This dream that they sold to you for $100 and some change. Consumption is in the veins. And now I see it's just another pair of shoes. It's a... It's a chiasm. It's poetic. It's a cutting critique of Nike and consumption mentality and how they are sowing that into youth. And specifically in this case, in the, the broader song about how they're sowing it into youth in poor situations, as if this is what's going to get them out. These magical shoes that are going to make them great uh, basketball players and it's going to release them from their situation. So in instances like this, we can see very clearly it's not decorative. It's not cute. He's actually making very incisive, cutting remarks and critiques about a whole uh, range of issues in American society. And he decided that one of the best ways to do that was not just to stand up on a stage and say those things as true statements, but to actually uh, embed them into poetry. Mm. And I would say it is much more powerful uh, as a chiasm at the end of the song. And the chiasm seems to show – He's intentional. And what was the thing that changed? He had this realization. I used to think this and then, nah, I don't think that anymore. Now I realize. Now I see. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it seems so plain and ordinary, but it's actually in the same way that a syllogism, you know, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal. Socrates is mortal, therefore, seems very plain. But it's actually doing some very uh, shrewd reasoning with us about what they think the nature of reality is, the invisible forces that are organizing the world around us. Mm. That's amazing. So with like this modern example of uh, this uh, chiasm, what does that look like? You know, we, we you talked about how poetry is often used to make an argument about something, about the nature of something, the nature of reality, that invisible things that we can't necessarily point to, but that the things around us are pointing to, if we can organize it in a way like poetry does, that can make that point. How do we That's see that? That's very well said, by the way. <laughs> I wish I had said it that cleanly. So good, good job. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Um, no, that was uh, that was just off the top of my head. So probably just re- rearranging what, you, what of what you've already said. Desperately but, needed. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, what does that look like uh, in scripture? Like, what are some examples of how we see that happening? Um, do you have anything that you would uh, with kind of walk us or through? Just in general, just in general, um, or wh- whatever comes to mind for you. Like, how do we see poetry making an argument in that way? Hmm. Um. Well, the prophets are arguing, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, here, we could turn to Micah. Uh, that's an easy one. I hadn't planned on this one. But uh, Micah 6, talk about uh, I can do all things with a, a verse taken out of context. Um, <laughs> my, everybody knows Micah 6, 6. Uh, I don't know anybody who doesn't know that passage. Even non-Christians know that passage. Um, Micah 6, 6 is, uh, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does Yahweh require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God, right? Easy platitude, again, abstract, like, okay. And then you just say, okay, but what do you mean by that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that begins with Micah making an indictment. Uh, and it's, Micah is, uh, you know, he's a friend of Isaiah's. He um, is famous for being kind of like the prosecuting attorney of Yahweh against Israel, um, but that little saying, uh, he has told you, O oh man, begins with actually a series of rhetorical questions in poetic form. Uh, mm-hmm. And it begins with, with what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high? 
Now, rhetorical questions always have a, an implied answer. Now, the implied answer there is, is, you know, how can I come near to God's presence? Easy, with a sacrifice. Bring a sacrifice, you can come near. And, you know, that's the seemingly correct answer. Shall I come up before him with burnt offerings? Like, yeah, that's good. With calves a year old. And you're like, yeah, okay, if that's what you got, bring it, right? <laughs> Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams? And you're like, all right now, come on. What are you doing here, right? <laughs> but of course, there were there was somebody who brought thousands of rams to the tavern or to the temple and sacrificed them there to Yahweh, and that was Solomon, Solomon right? Yeah. Um and so how did that turn out? I guess is the question you could ask. So mm. he's not just asking rhetorical questions for the sake of being pesky to Yahweh. Um He's saying, oh, well, thousands of rams do. Well, we know somebody who took thousands of rams. And then at the end of his life, he encouraged human sacrifice on the mountain east of Jerusalem, the mm. Mount of Olives, right? So probably not. <laughs> With tens of thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my uh, being or soul? And that ends with, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does Yahweh require of you to, to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly. The problem uh, that has been laid out that Micah is merely referring back to is that even in Leviticus, it says you can't just bring sacrifices. You have to build your houses in a particular way. You have to sow your fields in a particular way. You have to reap them in a particular way. You have to treat uh, the men, women, and children around you in a particular way, the foreigners. like You, you are, have obligations to be the kind of community that God is calling you to be, and you just want to talk about bringing sacrifices to make things right. And so the answer, he has told you, oh man, what does Yahweh require of you? It, all he's doing is bringing them back to what the Torah already taught them, that um, that sacrifice apart from being the proper community that God called you to be is never going to work. And that's mm -hmm. why Amos can say, I hate, I despise your sacrifices. By the way, Jesus does nothing new in the New Testament on this front. He's like, oh yeah, you want to come pray in the temple and then say nasty things about the guy next to you, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is no bueno. Hmm. Uh, you want to get, you think giving some money is what sets you out straight and look, you do it with all this pomp and circumstance. You think fasting, you make yourself look gaunt so that everybody will know how serious you are about your spiritual life. If I could put it in modern terms, um, that's not what God wants, right? Who, who is the neighbor? Who's the one who showed love? Um, is the one who looked out for the vulnerable, the weak, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Notice that point is made in a piece of poetry, uh, with a few rhetorical questions. And a very punchy end to it. Mm. Um, and it also, going back to Bible literacy, it requires that you kind of knew what was going on back in the Torah. Uh, otherwise, you end up saying things like the things that people say about Jesus, like, oh, he taught this new rule, love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, he is literally quoting Leviticus 19. <laughs> no, but he says, do not hate your brother in your heart. Again, Leviticus 19, right? <laughs> um, and he expected you to go all the way through it. So they're using poetry here to call back to sections of the legal reasoning of the Torah uh, and to mm -hmm. stories of, of Egypt – or sorry, of Israel coming out of Egypt and putting it back together saying, you, you should know this, guys. You should really have already understood this. So let me repunctuate the sentence that you already have in your head. Mm. Um, did I answer your question? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we were talking about how poetry – reasons with us about the nature of something yeah can i give a grand example yes and then uh and then maybe we should move on but uh gordon wenham has actually made an argument back in the 80s or 90s uh he published an argument and when i found it i was like ah this makes so much sense because I, I i work on genesis 1 through 11 
And as I read through the Noah story, I'm always like, this isn't a story. It doesn't have like a proper conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. It doesn't read like the other stories that have a very clear narrative arc to them. And there's a lot of parallel elements here, but it's it's big. There's lots of parallel elements. So he went through and just labeled them. And he said, I think this is a big chiasm um, that begins uh, in the genealogy of Noah and uh, ends in him exiting the ark. And he labels it out and it actually works really well. It's big. It's like three chapters long. Mm-hmm. But in the very center of that chiasm, again, if the chiasm is meant to move you in and then move you out and, the, and you're supposed to look at, well, what happens to reverse the flow? Um, the sentence at the center of that chiasm uh, is, and God remembered his covenant with Noah, mm. right? So, you know, and I, and I won't argue to the death that that's exactly what's going on there. I think it makes a lot of sense of the literary structure of that passage, uh, that, that portion of scripture. Um, but what I will say, if, if that is correct, and we'll look at this again when we get to narratives in future episodes, then whatever else we want to say about the flood narrative, it is, it is somehow intentionally focused on the fact that God remembered his covenant with Noah. Uh, and anything mm-hmm. else we want to say about that narrative has to place some primacy on that statement. and can't just throw it aside and go, yeah, 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 okay, God remembered it. No, no, no. That's that In the author's mind, if that chiasm is correct— that's what the author is thinking about as they're telling us all these other things about what happened. Mm, the main point that they yep. want us to be sure to not miss. Exactly. And so something that superficially appears like a big story, and it's anybody who reads that and just say like, okay, draw where Noah is at which time, draw when the door closes. It, it's There's all kinds of weird things going on in that that make it not a clear story. Um, and then once you say, oh, wait, this might be poetry of a very – a lyrical poetry of a very different kind – uh, then, then everything changes within. Like the con- again, as soon as you realize there's some different form in play, the content inside the poem has to be restructured and rethought. So, mm. and again, I won't go to the death on saying that that <laughs> is a chiasm, but man, it makes a lot of sense of what's going on there. Hmm. That's interesting. So now we've talked a lot about uh, poetry over these past two episodes, and I think. Uh, this is probably given, I know it's given me, it's probably given a lot of our uh, listeners right now a lot to think about in relation to their reading of poetry in the Bible. What are some, um, are there any final examples you'd like to give or maybe even some some final thoughts on how to read poetry, like how to take what we've learned over these past two episodes about poetry into how we're reading the Bible? Yeah, I think if I keep it very simple, I would say, uh, and this is a tip from Matthew Mullins, who's a literature professor who says, just read it out loud. Get in the practice of mm-hmm. actually reading it out loud with others if you can, but even by yourself, read it out loud and hear it because uh, that's the natural habitat of, of Scripture and certainly poetry. Also, read it out loud with a view towards um, thinking that the, whoever wrote this poem or embedded this poetry, they are trying to show you something invisible that can't be seen otherwise. Like they're trying to point out the invisible features of reality in the same way that a scientist, you know, at a science center who's trying to explain to kids why f- quantum phenomena or, you know, what it is about electromagnetism, something that cannot be seen at all, right? Kind of like the wind. It can't be seen, but you can explain its effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think poetry is doing that kind of work. And I, I would close with this piece of po- poetry that is many people think is the very first worship song about Jesus. Uh, it's the poem. It's called the Christ hymn in Philippians two. Uh, most of us know this passage. Um, many of us don't know that this passage, most people, most new Testament scholars think Paul is quoting a known piece of literature, a known poem. 
And so you can see he's he's saying, yes, okay, you know about Jesus. He walked on the earth. You know he did these miracles. You you know these historical facts about what happened. But let me tell you what you don't know, what is not evident, what was not visible to anybody who was there watching him. They couldn't see this part. Um, and so he's explaining uh, this mind of Christ. Uh, and he says in chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he's doing there is, I think, the you know, if you think about Paul, he's saying, like, how do I help them understand what kind of people they should be? And his answer is, I'm going to appeal to a piece of poetry that puts together not the visible parts of Jesus' life, but the, the invisible parts that we can't see, um, the plan that was hatched up by God, the submission of Jesus. You can't see Jesus' submission in his head. You can only see it when he comes in human form and when he lives a life uh, up to death and to crucifixion even. Um, so as my colleague Michelle Knight, who is a poetry specialist in the Old Testament, likes to say, don't skip the poetry. <laughs> it might be some of the most powerful stuff in Scripture. Wow. Don't skip the poetry. I'll just repeat that. (laughs) Good word. Good word. Well, happy poetry reading, everyone. And we will meet you back here for episode seven. Thanks for listening to Discover Your Roots. This podcast is brought to you by the Passages team and is made possible by our generous donors. If you'd like to make a contribution to the work we do, please visit PassagesIsrael.org and click the donate button. To find more resources about the Bible in its original context, the roots of the Christian faith in Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Jewish-Christian relations, and more, subscribe to our newsletter at passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, that's passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media to learn more about Israel and the Bible at Passages Israel. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time. I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.